Investors Chronicle. Welcome back to the Companies and Markets show. Delighted to be back. It's Wednesday, a rare Wednesday afternoon recording, which means that uh, we're actually missing out on the, the regularly scheduled cake trolley. So we're doing that for you, listener. Yep, this podcast comes at a cost. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's the most animated I ever see Dan on that conversation. <laughs> I think I think it's unedifying the cake trolley. It's got out of control. There's just the pile on is. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't deny any of these comments. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, we we digress. We digress. Actually, I'm wondering now if that's why Dan was a bit late to this podcast. Anyway, uh, joining us as you've already heard over the line, we've got Alex Newman. Hi, Alex. Hi, John. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Julian Hoffman as well. Hi, Julian. Hey there, John. And Mark Robinson as well. And then in the studio, Dan Jones. Dan, what's coming up today? Hi, John. Yeah, we have a uh, bevy of different uh, uh, topics today. We are starting with the supermarkets, with Tesco uh, specifically. Its results this morning, just looking at what more we can glean about the uh, currently quite dismal fate for the UK consumer and how Tesco is holding up uh, in amongst that. Then we will be looking at our cover story this week, which is also on a consumer favourite, Coca-Cola. Alex Newman has looked at the bull case and the bear case for the company as a, a bit of a demonstration of how to analyse pluses and minuses for a particular stock. And finally, we are returning to the, the big macroeconomic story of the moment, rising interest rates. And we're looking at those from a corporate perspective, and we're going to be discussing some of the many ways they might impact UK PLC over the months ahead. Before we get into the show, a quick news roundup as usual. The new car market recorded its second successive month of growth in September, with registrations up 4.6% year on year. And sales of electric vehicles continue to rise. More than one in five new cars registered were either battery or hybrid vehicles. However, overall registrations remain well below pre-pandemic levels. Real estate agency Knight Frank has predicted that house prices will fall 10% over the next two years, becoming the first major broker in the UK to forecast a double-digit downturn. Minor Anglo-Pacific Group is changing its name. The company will now be known as Ecora Resources. It comes as the company pivots away from coal towards metals associated with the energy transition. Greg's like-for-like sales were up 15% in Q3 as it maintained its full-year expectations. They've also opened 90 new shops so far this year. Shares rose 10% on the news. Telecom Plus shares rose 18% on Monday as the utilities company profits from the energy crisis. Telecoms Plus bundles services across energy, communications and insurance and has seen 86,000 customers acquired in the first half of the year. Shell stock, on the other hand, plunged 5% after a trading update said Q3 results would be, quote, significantly lower than Q2, blaming a volatile and dislocated market. Profits for Q2 were £3.4 billion. And Made.com have said they hope to see bids coming in this month for the business. The furniture retailer has seen a market valuation crash from over £600 million to just £16 million. And finally, the Bank of England has now stopped buying government bonds for the first time since its emergency intervention to stabilise the market. That's all from me. On with the rest of the show. Thanks, John. Yeah, so Tesco, to begin with, its results this morning, as we record on Wednesday. You know, the company is under pressure, but at the same time, it seems to be holding up relatively well, is my you know potted summary. Mark, 
Is that a fair assessment, do you think, of uh, Tesco's position right now? Absolutely accurate uh, there, Dan. Uh, I, I guess in many the, the shares came off slightly on, on release this morning, but uh, I don't think it would have really uh, surprised anyone. On, on the plus side of the ledger, the volumes have uh, held up, uh, as has the the firm's uh, market share. In fact, we we a few months back we. We looked at Tesco from that perspective as well, because Kantar had put some data out which showed that it had increased uh, its market share, albeit marginally. But the, the significant point there was that this was the first time in six years that it had done this. And it was also fairly clear at that point of the year as well that uh, management was trying to get out ahead of the inflationary spiral. I mean, prices were already rising by the end of the first quarter and indeed before that. But they'd, they'd taken concrete measures, expanded the, the share match uh, program they've got as well. And I think, as you talk about in a moment as well, the, the, the loyalty schemes have, have proven to be very successful. I was... Um, a scuttlebutt's a sort of a useful thing with the supermarkets at the moment because I was uh, discussing them with a friend of mine and she's got a couple of young kids and I, I just asked her, you know, have there been any changes to your sort of uh, consumer habits? And she said, yes, well, she started going to the, the German discounters, not for f fresh food, but for uh, the store cupboard items. And I think we're going to find a lot more of that as, as the year progresses. It, it shows that the, the main determinant for for the grocers is the duration of the inflationary period as well, because they can they can deal with sort of contracting profits for a certain length of time, but they're going to get to a point eventually, and, and perhaps some of them got there already, where they can't pass on costs anymore, else consumers will invariably trade down. Yeah. And we, we, we seen, I suppose, just to set the scene a bit more, obviously, the supermarkets point of view coming into this year, they wanted to avoid the mistakes of few years back the last time we had a bit of uh, inflation albeit not the same level we have now where the discounters really ate into market share to an extent that has happened again you know as per your um, your conversation just then mark you know i think it was just a couple of weeks ago that aldi overtook morrison's to be a become effectively one of the big four for the first time or at least for the first time in a while but from tesco's point of view it does seem to be holding up quite well even with regards to that and as you say you know the loyalty factor the loyalty scheme seems to be crucial here and, and this is something that the retailers outside of the UK have done for you know several years. They've used, uh, in Tesco's case, the club card scheme. You know, other retailers have used their equivalents to offer discounts for those using the club card scheme. And this seems to work really well from Tesco's point of view. You know, they um, the club card numbers are really soaring, and that can obviously offer greater analytics insights in future as well. Uh, and it gives them a way to you know keep price increases down to a certain extent and you know it, it attracts the consumer you know you feel like you're getting a good deal don't you when you see the big difference yeah i i don't think they've got a great deal of room to maneuver as well because i if uh, memory serves me I, I think tesco last year were uh, trading on a, a net margin of 1.3 percent so it well firstly it, it leaves you wondering how uh how the German discounters managed to sort of push it down any further than that. With ruthless efficiency. Uh, ruthless Marco. efficiency, that would be it. That would be it. <laughs> uh, I, I guess a, a point as well is that, that uh, Audi or Lidl, neither of those companies offer a home delivery service, or, although I think that I think Audi may have had an arrangement with Deliveroo at some point. That's a factor. In March of this year as well, the bosses at Tesco were evaluating exactly what happened in lockdown 
and the changes to consumer behavior there. Because we had sort of various dynamics. People were obviously eating a lot more at home, cooking uh, in-house. And so they probably had to question since then or try and evaluate what is what has become hired wide ha- uh, behavior for consumers. But eventually, it just boils down to price in an inflationary environment. Yeah. And I think I should clarify as well, the, the thing that Tesco are doing differently now is, you know, that they're, they're really, you know, you go into a Tesco now, you see the price and then underneath you see the club card price. And there can be some big differences in those cases. Alex, I think you had a point to make on a, on loyalty schemes. Yeah, no, I, it's just a more sort of general point on value of these these loyalty schemes. It's one thing to point out is that it's something that all the supermarkets do now. It's kind of standard operating uh, procedure to have this this scheme. I'm also just not really that convinced with the data supermarkets have on on their customers is is nearly as important as it seems from an, an investor's perspective. I mean, it's really important to the supermarkets to understand or have some oversight of the shopping habits of their customers because it means they can plan and target. But I mean, the dynamics of the sector are such that you know any efficiency or margin gains from this data. Is, is basically imperceptible. I mean, Tesco's shares down today on their, their interims. They're down quite heavily over the last few months. Long term, they're down, you know, they're down even more. You know, the, the, it's not having this data doesn't make the UK supermarkets a Google. It's, you know, it's, it's not capped information. They can sell them to third parties in the same way. So I think, you know, th- these these club cards have been a good initiative for kind of like pulling pulling people in a little bit. But Everyone does it. I don't really know what the edge it necessarily provides in terms of expanding or growing the business. As first first principles, really, um, Jack Cohen had it right all those years ago. You know, pilot high, sell it cheap. Yeah, and I think I, uh, I was listening to some of the management call earlier in Tesco. You know, they you know, obviously the, these uh, these schemes do lend themselves to big pronouncements, but as you say, the, the proof will be in the pudding or otherwise whether there actually is going to be any impact on. You know, bottom line is quite hard to discern at this point. I think they talk about things like you know personalized promotions and things like that, but as you say, how much that moves the needle is really uh, uh, up for debate, to say the least. Certainly worth a look. I mean, Chris, uh, the stock itself, uh, Chris Ackers this morning pointed out they've got a, a forward rating of ten times uh, earnings, and they're trading on a, a forward div- dividend yield of nearly six percent. So uh, it's certainly worth a, a second look from an investment perspective. Well, you do have to wonder, though, whether that isn't heading towards value trap. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. I think it is a value trap. Uh, we know that there's big headwinds coming for the consumer. It's probably quite hard to see a, a catalyst in the near term. But at the same time, it strikes me as a, similar to, you know, uh, Next, we discussed briefly last week, Mark, um, off off the podcast, we know a well-managed business, which is coming in the bottom end of guidance. Next brought those down a bit. But, you know, those those structural headwinds are quite hard to get past in the short term. But maybe some value there longer term opinions differ oh, every every little helps doesn't it Dan That's, uh... as someone said yeah well I wanted to actually um pick up one other thing before we move on because uh, it does segue in nicely as well another line from results call summed it up really Tesco chief exec saying we see customers prioritizing value wherever they can which you know doesn't sound that surprising in the context of uh, what's going on but I wonder what that might mean for you know the consumer staples really the, the companies for whom brands are still very important We've got, you know, Unilever, for example, reporting at the end of the month. Last time we heard from them, again, they were managing to pass on prices quite well. They hadn't seen much transferring down. But the situation's only got tougher since then. And you do kind of wonder what 
you know, how much the the price sensitivity of everyone right now is really going to rub up against the marketing share that the marketing they have and the market share they have. Well, I think we'll probably come back to that as well because a, a week prior to Unilever releasing those quarterly updates from both Procter and Gamble and Nestle as well, mm-hmm. so we'll certainly get uh, some idea then. And you know, uh, I, I guess one of the salient points is: that will people be going over to generics? We've seen it in the past. You know, is, is brand loyalty is still as uh, still as important as it used to be? There's going to be quite a few interesting questions. I think we we could possibly. I come back to it uh, later in the month, I think. Yeah, I can. Um, I could throw some Scuttlebutt into the hat while, um, while we're at there. it. Um, I mean, I'm a. I'm a recently sort of converted back to Lidl for for price reasons. So I'm probably the kind of person who's getting picked up in the Kantar World Panel market share shakeup, sort of transferring to from Morrison's to the German discounters. But I noticed the other day Heinz Heinz tomato ketchup three pound forty nine and the slightly smaller but little own brand version was 59p and the sort of thing yeah I'm, I'm a big i'm a big heinz tomato ketchup fan but you know i think when when you're presented with stark differences between the sort of the brand staples and the own brand it kind of ex- goes away to explaining why you know over the last decade the share of the german discounts has gone from six percent to to sixteen percent um, I think I, think I, I would foresee an even more radical future. I mean, if you go over to Germany, there are no supermarkets other than Lidl or Aldi. Is that so? Well, pretty much. And you, you kind of think, well, it is ruthlessly about the price. And and obviously, like you, Alex, I buy my olive oil at uh, Lidl these days. And um, yeah, it, it's it is it does come down to the value. You know, you just you know, we've got a waitress up the road, but we don't bother going there. We just go down to the local Lidl. Uh, Alex. Isn't the reason that you went to Little uh, initially was for the, much the same reason that you go to the Tate Modern because of the displays they had in store, the sort of seemingly anomalous products. This is what you told me ages ago. Yeah, I mean, mid, Middle Little is still is still a wonder to behold. I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I don't I don't buy from it, but um, yeah, that has a modern art quality yeah. to it. Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned Waitrose, Julian, and one one thing strikes me: if we do get you know more pressure on uh, higher income or middle income, okay, from say rising mortgage rates, whether those kind of people might shift down to a Tesco or whether they would just go all the way down to the discounters, we'll see. I do also know actually um, on ketchup because I specifically went to Tesco to buy ketchup the other day that their their price was three pound thirty, which obviously struck struck me as very extreme, but I suppose that is slightly cheaper than uh, the uh, the Heinz ketchup in. Um, Aldi and Little, which shows they can negotiate better prices with Heinz, but they still can't really compare to the uh, the store's own version, as you say, which kind of sums it up, I suppose. Anyway, uh, let's move seamlessly on to uh, a, another big brand. As we mentioned at the top, Coca-Cola, one of the most distinctive brands in the world, if not the most distinctive. I'm just, you know, spitballing here, but I imagine so. Uh, our cover feature this week, though, Alex, you've, you've written about uh, is really a deep dive into the drink, no pun intended, and, and into how one analyzes a share you know both the the positive and the the negative the bull and the bear case if you will so why don't you maybe just talk a bit about what what kind of inspired this and what what kind of things you were looking at in that piece yeah i mean i, I suppose what inspired the piece is that i, I mean i find this really really in coca-cola company that is u.s listed parent company of, of all the sort of coke branding and operations it's just it's such an interesting company because it is clearly has the hallmarks of a quality stock. It has this this huge 140 year history, 
the brand power that you alluded to there, I think after technology companies, you know, it's very slippery to evaluate the value of brand equity. But after technology companies, it is, I think, widely seen as having the most valuable brand IP in the world. And yet it is operating in a market that is incredibly mature. It sells soft drinks. It's not reinventing the future. And where the investment case sits now with what you might expect to to come of a, a company in this kind of market, for me, is, is a very, very hard one to work out. So it was almost kind of a thought exercise. Yeah, I, I suggested suggested doing it as a, as a kind of bull and bear case. Uh, and I, I, I probably unsatisfactorily don't come down on either side at the end. But yeah, that's that, that was kind of the inspiration behind behind one side. And there's a lot to pick up there. I mean, as you, you say, even, you know, in terms of how we, we name the company, you know, it's, um, its operating model is quite interesting. We'll come to that in a minute. Or maybe we'll come to it right now, because I wanted to talk about as well, you know, the fact that Coke itself is, you know, less than 50% of it, the company's sales. You know, it's very much about finding new products, finding acquisitions that can keep it it going, keep that that narrative going. And yeah. there are various interesting ways that the business structure allows it to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Coke, when you say Coke being just under half sales, that's Coke, I think Coke trademark products, so everything else, so Coke yep. Zero, Diet Coke, et cetera. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, it has diversified into all these other beverage areas, be it energy, you know, other energy drinks, you know, fruit juices, bottled water, et cetera. But, I mean, the company structure and the, the way it operates is is kind of the secret recipe, really, to its success. Rather than, I mean, its US operations are slightly different, but when you're looking at the global company, rather than sell directly to consumers, what it's mainly involved in doing is the sourcing and production of concentrate and syrup for its drinks, which it then distributes to licensed bottling partners. So they add the water, other sweeteners um, at production hubs near to where the drinks are consumed. And in that sense, it's kind of like, sort of like a platform company, slightly loath to use that word, but that's sort of one way you could pitch it in the, in that it kind of licenses a product which it produces for very low cost and it removes itself from the most capital intensive parts of the you know the value add chain so the logistics of getting the the finished products to to the consumer the quite labor and capital intensive job of actually finishing the projects which requires enormous resources and manufacturing capacity so what it's done is it's 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 basically extracted itself from all the lower margin stuff created these symbiotic relationships with bottling companies around the world and kind of parked itself in in a in a sort of position where it it earns gross margins of about 50 percent returns on equity you know consistently over 40 percent and it's just wildly profitable, much, much more profitable than its uh, its bottlers. And, you know, that's why that's why it trades on, you know, such a heady valuation. Um, but yeah, I mean, as we discussed in the piece, I think there are some issues with this this model and, and kind of limits to the why it is necessarily a, a good thing. And I suppose one of those right now is, you know, when, when your sales growth is, you know, this is a mature product, okay, it's got various... Uh, developing markets to sell into, but nonetheless, most people by now will have heard of of Coke and um, uh, certainly the main offshoots. But it's also fighting inflation right now, and cost increases in you know all parts of that chain, which which makes things more difficult as they do for everyone at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, I think most of those 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 kind of cost headwinds are borne by their bottling partners. Mm. Um, the way that 
the both the company and its partners manage this is is the Coca-Cola parent company can raise prices. So in the second quarter of this year, they reported 16% organic revenue growth. So that was down to about 4% sort of growth in growth in sales and 12% from uh, from price inflation, which suggests that you know they're very good at passing on, uh, or they have been at least in the past year, being able to meet the challenge of inflation and passing on uh, higher prices to the consumer. But yeah, I mean, managing that going forward, you know, they're not going to be able to raise prices every year. And also the tension that that sits in this operating model is how well capitalized and, and on what kind of margins that the bottling companies can can operate on. And, you know, it's it's all very well and good having a franchisee model that means you can earn these fat margins. But when there are problems with your, you know, your 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 counterparties, you know, you can't you can't sort of escape those those issues coming back to uh, to haunt you. So no, no, not necessarily any problems immediately on the horizon, but longer term, uh, you know, with you think looking at things like water scarcity and uh, you know just general cost inflation, you could imagine that that it's, life's going to get a bit harder for some of the bottling companies and therefore for Coca Cola Company. We, we do talk a bit about uh, some of the uh, the bottling companies in more detail in the piece. There are a couple of uh, UK listed ones there as well. So if this has piqued your interest, do, do pick that up. Um, the other thing I want to ask about is, you know, this is a, a very interesting case study. And as we've discussed, you know, you look at the bull, the bear case. I suppose it's just interesting from a behavioural point of view. I mean, this is something I discussed with uh, Dan McCrum on our recent interviews podcast about Wirecard and you know short selling things like that. You know, making those cases when you hold the stock is it, it, quite can be quite difficult behaviorally. To you know, of course, you can look at the positives, but weighing them against the negatives can be quite a hard balancing act to do if you already if you're already in the stock. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was saying at the start. I mean, um, you know, it's often said that that you know of quality companies that the best strategy is to kind of buy them and forget about them because. You know they're gonna they're gonna compound over the years, and we should say you know I didn't talk about before that there are ways that Coca Cola can grow. It can recycle its uh, you know its enormous intangible assets back into creating new products or into parts of the beverage market where it can extract efficiencies and synergies. It's not a it's not a zero growth story, but for the main part, for the you know most of its sales are in incredibly mature markets where there's just you know, it's just harder to see the growth ahead being anything comparable to its history. So I don't think it's going to prove a, you know, a disaster of an investment case over the next decade. But if I was holding Coke, I, w- I would, I would struggle to see whether the quality features of the, of the company are going to outweigh the growth prospects. And, you know, that begs the question, is the quality over reflected in in the valuation, um, which asks you know asks quite a lot of, of of sort of future cash cash flows. So yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll I'll finish by sitting on the fence there. But that's that's kind of the dilemma I think behaviorally that the investors can face uh, with a company like this. Yeah, as I said, that is the uh, the cover story this week. So for the detailed discussion of all these issues, do uh, do pick up a copy. Mark Mark and Julian, any thoughts on uh, Coca Cola before we move on? Any strong opinions? Well, I thought it was amazing that. Um... Uh, Alex managed to get through it without talking about Warren Buffett, which is uh, <laughs> an immediately positive start. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but he's right. I, the, the, if we're looking at a generally low growth future, which you know you could make the economic case that we're entering into a, a kind of cyclical stagnation, does that 
is that going to reflect in how companies like this perform in the future? I mean, we only really know the growth of the company from its kind of post-war success. And um, well, yeah, it's not a given that that will continue in those in those same terms. So yeah, I think Alex has asked a very you know, searching and sensible question there. And uh, yeah, I mean, my view is that they'll, you, you can't go wrong with a brand. I mean, but you know, do you want to pay for it? That's the that's the question. So, like M and A could be a, a route through to growth as well. Yeah, it does. Like the the odd acquisition, as we uh, as we have touched on. Um, well, that does bring us on to looking at growth stories and quality stories and companies in general and how they will go in the future. The immediate future in the UK, at least, is one of higher interest rates in not just the UK, of course, but it's very much on the minds of everyone at the moment, given what's happening in the mortgage market. But Mark, you, you've written this uh, week from a corporate perspective on some of the things to watch for when it comes to rising interest rates uh, yeah. in terms of the earnings it, piece. It, it struck me that um, well, some of our younger readers or, or listeners, uh, they wouldn't have seen a situation like this before because we've had a period of uh, over 10 years where we've had ultra low interest rates at certain times, relatively low inflation too. And so when they've come uh, to weigh up their investment decisions, they haven't, they haven't really been asked to, to look uh, at the interaction between uh, interest rate bond yields and, and equity valuations too. And I, I guess with the situation that it's playing out at the moment, Again, I go back to this point, the critical, the critical area is going to be the duration uh, of, the, uh, of this period of elevated interest rates too. There was a lot of hyperbole in the press last week in relation to the mini budget, I thought, particularly when you look at interest rates from a historical perspective. There's other, uh, I think in uh, last week's podcast as well, we, we spoke about uh, uh, savings levels as, and you know, we we mightn't see the level of uh, same level of distress uh, throughout the economy. Another thing you talk about, uh, if we just talk about it briefly, because I do want to come to debt burns in general. But another thing you look at is IPOs. You know, the kind of the case for and against. Obviously, it's a pretty dismal IPO market or non-existent anyway right now. But but there's kind of two sides to that coin. Yeah, there there is. I mean. Um, Theoretically, at least, when they're falling, or sort of rising interest rates, rather, uh, it acts as a, a disincentive in, in terms of just like borrowing that we've we've seen in recent times. And I was thinking here of like private equity in, partic- in particular. You know, high, higher interest rates they provide uh, an incentive to to tap public markets uh, because. I, I don't think that's the, the, the reason why we've had this slump in I, IPOs, uh, particularly in the UK over the last uh, 18 months or so. But we, we're just going to have to have to wait and see. I, I was looking around uh, this morning for some data on private equity and uh, the level of uh, leverage there at the moment, but I couldn't come up with anything that was uh, particularly meaningful. Uh, but it, by the same token, all the companies have been putting their listing plans on ice. I mean, that much is, is fairly obvious, but... That might have been exacerbated by the fear of inflation and you know, the subsequent rate rises as well. So you know, it's a sort of a it's one side of the coin and the other, really. Yeah, that, that private equity piece is interesting because, as you say, private equity costs are going up as well, which are you know quite important to them in terms of how they work the numbers. Strikes me, you know, we we spoke last week about the weaker pound making the UK more attractive to overseas buyers, but. You know, given what's happening with interest rates, it might be that the private equity buyers are uh, on the uh, on the outs somewhat, and maybe 
maybe yeah, they're looking to 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 get out of some private companies and make a profit by by listing them as well, albeit perhaps a couple of months down the line. Yeah, I, I I really did try hard to try and get some data on that as well. So I don't, I, I've got no idea how someone like KKR would go about financing these deals as mm. well. I mean, they're, they're they're short term they're short term arrangements for the most part. Anyway, they just want to get in and get out as quickly as possible. So yeah, I think you have seen in recent weeks as well, though. You know, companies who, if you do a, a debt assisted takeover, you know, you've got to issue some debt afterwards. High yeah. yield debt in a lot of cases. We saw, I think, with Citrix that those those bonds uh, issued in relation to that deal have been a really struggle to get away. So that could, you know, send a chill yeah. chill through people looking to do to do the same yeah. in future. Indeed, no. and I, I finalised the remarks as well with the, you know the obvious uh, the obvious danger, and that's for interest rates, and that's to liquidity in the market. I mean, yeah. that's sort of playing out already, but that's uh, that's a given, really. Yeah. So we are. Yeah. Obviously, we're going to keep a, a close eye on these things, uh, as we tend to do. The the final thing, perhaps, to say on, on this whole subject is, is in many ways the most obvious one is you know companies with big debt burdens, and more pertinently, companies with debt rolling off in the short term as well. You know, uh, that is something suddenly which is a, a consideration that will be worrying some people more than others. Dan sent some data through this morning as well, and I had a look through as well, and well, based on that analysis the, the the uk market might be as badly exposed as we think a lot a lot of uh, the debt itself uh, you know beyond lease liabilities falls over the medium to to long term so it goes back again to this point of over um, you know duration of, of a rising interest rate period yeah i think yeah as you say it's it's you know not going to derail the investment case in many cases but it might just take a little bit off here and there the flip side being, you know, if you're a company with a lot of cash on your balance sheet, you, you can uh, refinance and, and get a lot uh, high margin on, on that at the moment, which, which could provide a little bit of an uplift in a difficult time. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, this is not an unusual time that we're in at the moment. I mean, the, the, the base rate is still well below its uh, long term average. It's just that people haven't been, uh, well, many investors anyway, haven't been used to this environment and uh, having to make. Uh, uh, assumptions uh, linked to interest rates and uh, bond yields. Yeah, it's a it's a new world for some people. But uh, uh, yeah, as you say, the the real question is how long this period lasts. And you know, the Bank of England will have something to say about that. And and uh, we will have something to uh, to add to it, I'm sure, as well as and when these decisions are made. So uh, so do keep listening and reading uh, the Investors Chronicle for more on that. But we have come to the end of our time this week again, so thank you to John and to Mark and to Julian and to Alex, and thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next week on another Companies and Markets show. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.